in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We are in this section where Jesus is addressing how true righteousness is to be practiced. Uh, so we, we saw, if you recall last week, uh, how there is a way to practice righteousness, to practice holiness that is fitting, that is keeping with the nature of true righteousness. And there is also a way to practice righteousness that is utterly inconsistent with true righteousness. It actually turns the act into unrighteousness. And we noted last time that verse 1 gives us the main principle, namely that you are called to practice your righteousness for the pleasure and honor of God, not in order to receive honor from your fellow men. And this principle is then applied uh, to a few situations. It's worked out with regard to a few ways that we commonly practice righteousness. So it began last time, as we noted, with giving to the needy. And then today, as we will see, he gets into prayer. And we'll cover that the next couple of weeks. And then, and then he'll get into uh, fasting. So today, as we said, we're coming to prayer. We're going to cover verses 5 to 8 this week. And then next week, Harley is going to pick up uh, in verse 9 and take us through the Lord's Prayer as we uh, commonly know it. Um, so we're going to cover verses 5 to 8, but I, I want to read again, starting in verse 1, uh, just to remind us of the, that, that principle that's stated in verse 1 and, uh, and see how Jesus says a very similar thing in verses 5 to 8 that he did in verses 2 to 4. So let's read beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So as we work through verses 5 to 8, uh, we're going to look at three things that prayer is not, and then uh, two things that prayer is. So, so first thing, uh, prayer is not a show for others that glorifies you. Prayer is not a show for others that glorifies you. It, this is such a, I hope, a really obvious thing, that uh, point that I've just made. In one sense, we might think, why even say it? It seems so obvious that prayer is not about glorifying yourself in front of other people. It's not a show for others. No, nobody, I, I would 
hope nobody here would actually ever consciously think that. It's a little bit almost discouraging that our Lord finds it necessary to teach us this and to tell us this. But apparently we need to hear it and we need to consider it. Verse 5 again says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So apparently there is such a way to pray. There is such a thing as praying in such a way that one is out to glorify themselves, to get attention to oneself. So just as with giving to the needy that we looked at last week, so also with prayer. Now you'll probably notice as we read through the verses that uh, verses 5 and 6 sound a lot like verses 2 to 4, except instead of giving to the needy, he's, he's substituting in now talking about prayer. But a lot of the same phrases, same wording is used. And if you remember uh, from last time, when Jesus talks of performing an act um, that they may be seen by others, that is doing it so as to be seen by other people and then to receive their praise. That's desiring their uh, approval of you and their applause and praise of you. That's what that's talking about. And this is what Jesus says hypocrites do. These, remember last time, these play actors. Those people that Jesus is talking about are those who would make a show of their righteousness but in fact are acting in unrighteousness. This is what makes it hypocrisy. Behold, here I am demonstrating my righteousness. You all see this and think of me as righteous now. But in fact, what Jesus is exposing is this is an unrighteous thing. Right? This is a hypocritical behavior. And you remember from last time, the scribes and the Pharisees, they are these hypocrites that Jesus has in mind. It's not limited just to them, but certainly it includes them. Jesus has had these individuals in his sights from back, all the way back in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Not only is their understanding of righteousness incorrect, which chapter 5 works out, but how they go about practicing righteousness. Even a good thing like prayer is all wrong, is hypocritical. They loved to be made much of by man. They had a great external showing of their religiosity. And apparently, Jesus is showing us here, and it comes up in other places in the Gospels, they loved to be seen when they were praying. They wanted to pray in public locations, the synagogues and the streets. The word for street here refers to a wide street, which probably suggests that they wanted to be, they did this in busy streets. Wide streets are busy streets. They're doing this in very public locations, public places where they could be seen. Others argue that perhaps what Jesus is getting at, when he talks about their uh, love to be seen in the streets, is it's that these men, as they are walking to the synagogue, where they will obviously pray in the synagogue, uh, they're, they're so enthusiastic, they can't even wait until they get there. They're just overcome. They need to pray even before they do, and so they just stop where they are, and they stand there, and they pray these prayers where these passers-by will see them praying. Regardless, Prayer in the synagogue, uh, leading it in front of other people as scribes and Pharisees would do. Uh, praying in these 
busy street corners. Now, these are places where they could be seen and where they would be applauded. They would be thought well of by men. And Jesus condemns this. He says that the praise that they get from other people is the sole reward they will get for that act. God is not pleased with this. He is not impressed by this. Whatever praise you get from man, that's it. Again, most of us, I think, would very easily recognize how wrong this is and, and would probably quite easily condemn such ostentatious uh, displays, such forms of hypocrisy. And yet we must also realize that this kind of thing can happen and does happen in a more subtle way. So for example, it could be that you want to be known as a person of prayer more than you actually want to be a person of prayer. Perhaps you want a certain reputation for being a prayer, or this applies to any other thing. You want to have a reputation of being a godly person. You want to be known as somebody who really cares or who evangelizes or whatever. You're concerned mainly and mostly with what other people might think of you, and so you do enough to uh, show other people that you really mean it because you want them to think rightly about you. They want, or they want you, they want, you want them to think highly of you. We can become concerned more with the thoughts of others that they would think we're godly than actually being godly. And these verses actually bring to our attention a very sobering reality. And it was, I feel like I reference Martin Lloyd-Jones every Sunday as we go through this. And I actually leave, I promise, I leave his commentary to the end because I try not to be too influenced. And yet... Um, he just is very helpful. <laughs> but he points out, and this is something nobody else did, and it kind of struck me. It's a very sobering reality that sinfulness is so pervasive that it lurks even in the most holy and personal of activities like prayer. So consider, in prayer, we approach the Almighty God, creator of all things, who is also our Heavenly Father if we are in Christ. And we approach God to speak to him, to speak with him. That is a, an enormous privilege, a sacred, holy moment. And yet, even in that very act, even in that moment, sin is crouching. Such that prayer, even something like prayer, can become about us. Can be something we use. Again, I doubt anyone here would think such a thing is okay. And yet how subtly it can happen. We pray so as to be heard by others. We pray so as to impress others, perhaps. We pray so as to just check off a box and feel better about ourselves. We turn prayer into some form of a show that is about us looking and feeling good. We do it just because it's going to be expected of me by my family or guests or whoever it is. 
so many different ways sin is lurking and reveals itself even in something like prayer. And so in this matter, we're again reminded of our tremendous need for God's grace, our need for gospel, for good news. Even something like our prayers are tainted by our sinfulness, such as the pervasiveness of sin. Even in those most precious, sacred of moments, something you might even enter into with all sincerity. I have need to pray and you start to pray. Even then, sin can enter in. And so your need, our need, is for grace. Our need is to live in grace. Our need is constantly grace. To have our sins forgiven through faith in the crucified and Lord Jesus Christ. And again, any approach to the Sermon on the Mount that wants to take this in some legalistic fashion is complete and utter folly. I, I trust you see that over and over again. We see also our need to be born again, to have the Spirit of God within us, to have a new heart. Because depravity reaches to every part of man, even even something like praying. So prayer is, is not a show for others that glorifies you. Secondly, prayer is personally communing with your omnipresent Father. Prayer is personally communing with your omnipresent Father. So omnipresent, if you don't know what that means, simply means He's everywhere. He is all present. Anywhere you go, your Father is there. So rather than an outward show and display for others to see, Jesus says in verse 6, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So an important aspect of true prayer is understanding that it is, in fact, a very personal matter between you and God. He says, go into your room, close the door, and pray. He says, this is, do it in secret. That is, it's a hidden thing. There's nobody there to pat you on the back, to see this deed and think highly of you. Jesus is showing in this, it's a very personal matter between you and God. Maybe you've heard the term of prayer closet. That's one of those phrases that's kind of made its way in. You go into your, find your prayer closet. People use that uh, to refer to a, a place where you can go. It's just you and the Lord and, and pray, pray to him. And this is, this is where that concept comes from. Going into a room and in a room and shutting the door and it's just you and the Lord. Now, this is not teaching that all prayers outside of a closed room are illegitimate. We know Jesus prayed in front of other people. He prays even for the benefit of other people. The early church in the book of Acts gathered and prayed. Some of the great moments of the early church is them praying together. But this text, again, is showing that it is the motive and the perspective that matters. Prayer is personal communion with your Father. So whether you're physically in a room all by yourself, 
or if you happen to be praying with other people in a group, the perspective that this calls you to is to remember that you are, first and foremost, above all, speaking to your Heavenly Father, God Almighty. So even when others are with you and present, their presence is a secondary thing the moment you begin to pray to God. You speak with and to God. You can take this approach out in public. You could pray in the street. Again, I don't think the problem here that Jesus is pointing out is that the street is the wrong place to to send up a prayer or something like that. The problem is not that you cannot and must not pray in the street. But you could. You could pray in the street and you could do it in such a way that you're not drawing attention to yourself and acting hypocritically. You could lift up a prayer before God. You could be overwhelmed by some burden all of a sudden and think, this, I need to pray about this. And you could pray about it without anybody around you knowing. You could pray about it in such a way that you're not drawing attention to yourself. And of course, understand the difference here. This is not saying, this is not excusing being ashamed of praying to God. You know, like, well... You, you feel that maybe shame that if I bow my head in this public place and say a prayer before I eat my food in this restaurant, someone might think I'm weird. And so I don't want to do that. And, and, and oh, Jesus says to pray, you know, in secret anyway. And so I just won't do it. I don't, this is not trying to excuse shame. This is trying to ward off, this is warding off and warning against being ostentatious. I'm going to pray here in this restaurant or publicly so others see that I am this kind of a person. So you could pray publicly without making a show of it. This is what Jesus is getting at. It is first a personal matter. It is communion between you and God. Why are you praying in that public place? You're addressing God. And he says here you're to pray to your father. Your father. There's a lot in that. Typically, we find ordinarily in the New Testament this pattern that prayer is to be addressed to the Father in the name of the Son and through or in the power of or with the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus obviously tells us here to pray to the Father. At the same time, as we know, the Holy Trinity The three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are one in essence and nature. They share the divine essence and nature together. So I don't think it's wrong to address a prayer, for example, to Jesus, to the Son. And we do see that. It's not common, but we do see that in the New Testament. When Stephen was being stoned, he addresses the Lord. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he prays, Lord, do not hold this against them. He's praying to Jesus specifically. But ordinarily, prayer is offered to the Father as Jesus here instructs us and will in verse 9 as we'll get to next week. And he says something very interesting about the Father here. So if you remember back in verse 4, he mentioned that the Father sees in secret. 
And he says that again at the end of verse 6. But before he says that at the end of verse 6, he says, pray to your father who is in secret. So consider, he is our father who art in heaven, which you'll say in verse 9, which he said in, in verse 1, your father who is in heaven. Our father who art in heaven is also your father who is in the secret place, who is there when it is just you and you shut your door and you pray to him. It tells you here he is present with you. He is in secret. He is in that hidden place. We rightly say he is there. This reminds us he's omnipresent. He is everywhere. And this is a key, I think, to this whole section on prayer. When we pray, we are approaching the God who is there. He is really and actually there. And that changes things. You know how this changes things on a human level. You think of somebody, maybe they've wronged you genuinely so, and you think about how you're, what you're going to say to them, and you're quite sure of how you're going to confront them about it, and you get there, and you're actually in their presence, and it just suddenly, it all becomes a lot softer, doesn't it? Often that happens. They, ooh, face to face, this is a little different. I can't just fly off the handle here. This is a little different. We can talk about people when they're not around or behind their back in one way. Then as soon as they're present, it changes. We, we understand that. When we pray, we are in the presence of God. We are communing with our omnipresent Father. And so again, we see the, the travesty that it is when prayer is turned into some self-glorifying thing. Wherever we happen to be, whatever the circumstances of our prayers, we are to pray as those who are communing with our Heavenly Father, who is present with us in that moment. Again, this is a sacred and a precious matter not to be corrupted for selfish, earthly gain of some sort. Again, Lloyd-Jones says, if only we would realize that we are approaching God, everything else would be right. It's maybe somewhat oversimplified, but I think it's true in many respects. If we would remember who it is that we are approaching when we pray. And even before we pray, I would suggest it is your duty then to remind yourself before you open your mouth and begin to pray of who it is that you're speaking to, about to speak to, whose presence you're in, who's listening. People often want to think of prayer as simply a practical matter of religion, and they like to kind of slice it off from doctrine and from theology. I've heard this so many times it hurts but well we don't need to get into doctrine with other people and, and and determine if we believe the same things we can just pray together though right we can pray together that's easy we can do that we don't need to get into the details of who it is exactly what who god is and what exactly how, how exactly he operates and we, we don't need to do that we'll just pray together Yet our theology of God is critical to the whole matter of prayer. Who are you talking to when you pray? 
I would suggest that's an important matter to figure out. Why study who God is and wrestle with difficult doctrines about God, his attributes that are sometimes difficult to try to get our heads around? Why, as finite people, try to understand who God is, try to comprehend something of the infinite God? Why bend our mind into knots sometimes to try to work through what Scripture says about who God is? There are lots of reasons why that's appropriate, but one of them is it will invigorate your prayers. It will help you in your prayer. If God is not all that great or impressive, then it's going to yield a casualness in your prayer, a casualness in your approach to God, a looseness with your language, and not a, maybe even an over, overly serious thing. God doesn't really care that much. He's not that holy. He's not really that interested in what I have to say. It's not a big deal. It is a remarkable statement Jesus makes here. God is in secret. The High and Holy One is present when you quietly pray with not a soul around you. That's worth considering. That's worth meditating upon and dwelling upon. Think about the Visions of God you find in the scriptures in the Old Testament. When there's an, suddenly a, an awareness of being in God's presence. Isaiah 6 obviously comes to mind. And how does that change Isaiah's approach to God? We, we find no casualness in Isaiah, do we? Not tossing out flippant statements and things that have not been thought out. This is the God we address. This is our God. So it's a remarkable thing to be able to speak with God, be able to come boldly, as we read earlier from Hebrews 4. So prayer is personally communing with your omnipresent Father. Thirdly, Prayer is not mindless repetition of words. Prayer is not mindless repetition of words. Given what I've, we've just seen, uh, this logically follows, I think. It is not a mindless enterprise to address the creator of all things. It should not be. So, so far in verses 5 and 6, we have the same, as I've said, same basic pattern we saw in verses 2 to 4. But now we get a little bit of additional structure. He's going to spend a little more time on prayer than he did on giving to the needy, than he, than he will on uh, fasting in verses 16 to 18. So verse 7, a little additional instruction. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Jesus warns us here against this pagan practice. Do not heap up empty phrases, he says. And that translates really a single Greek word, a word that is not all that common. 
There's some debate about precisely how to understand this word, but it seems generally agreed that the word is an onomatopoeia, if you know what that is. If not, this is what it means. It is a word that sounds like what it is describing. So, for example, the English word sizzle, it sounds like the very thing that it is describing. And so this Greek word here, it's kind of an odd-sounding word, batalageo, seems to be describing unintelligible and empty speak. William Tyndale, he was, of course, uh, a reformer. He was English. He translated the scriptures into English. It was on the run during the time of the Reformation. He translated this word with the English word babble, which is a good English equivalent. It's babbling. And in the second half of verse 7, which we'll get to more in a moment, we see this babbling was something that involved many words. They think for their many words they will be heard. It's heaping up empty phrases. Jesus is condemning here verbosity, piling up words that really don't mean anything to you. John Stott writes, to sum up what Jesus forbids his people is any kind of prayer with the mouth when the mind is not engaged. A prayer is not an incantation where as long as you just get the formula right, get the right words, then you get a magical result. This obviously condemns various types of rote prayers, prayers that are just mechanical. They're just merely a mechanical prayer or habitual uh, repetition is, is outlawed here as well. Any kind of prayer that's nothing more than this. And ironically, given the context of this, ironically, this is the way that the Lord's Prayer is often used. It is often employed in this very way that Jesus is telling us not to use it, not to pray. Consider, somebody starts saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, what happens? We all just zombie-like kick in and start repeating these words. And we're not really thinking often about who it is we're addressing. We just start saying the words. And we're actually thinking, are we using the word debts or trespasses? There's a lot of S's if we say trespasses. If the leader says debts and others are saying trespasses, it, and th these are the types of things that go through our mind. Meanwhile, we're supposedly praying. There's nothing wrong with memorizing it, obviously, or saying it out loud, but mindlessly saying the words and thinking that that was some meaningful prayer is precisely the kind of thing Jesus tells us not to do here. Likewise, we need to be on guard in all of our praying. How mindless things can become. We're about to eat. And we pray. Prayer at meals can become almost a thoughtless repetition. We use phrases that we might mindlessly throw in. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think the answer here is to stop praying at meals or to stop praying in Jesus' name, but we must think about what we're doing. 
Are we approaching the God of the universe who is also present with you? Or are you just doing something that needs to be done before you pray? Or before you eat? Is praying in Jesus' name meaningful to you? Or is it just a way of of wrapping it up? We are to be thinking people, engaged in what we are doing. It is not something where we just mouth certain words and done. It is to be a meaningful expression that arises from faith in the God whom we are addressing. Fourthly, prayer is not badgering God in order to make him take notice or to inform him of things. Prayer is not badgering God in order to make him take notice or to inform him of things. The reason for the Gentiles heaping up of phrases is given in the middle of verse 7. Why do they do this? For they think that they will be heard for their many words. As long as we just say the right things, and as long as we say enough of those right things, then perhaps, as we repeat them over and over again, perhaps we'll get the attention of God and he will answer. When it says that they hope they will be heard, it means more than they just hope God will audibly hear. It implies that they're hoping that they will then receive a favorable response. This is describing a type of prayer that is calling out to God in order to get his attention, in order to try to get him to take notice. And the piling up of words will perhaps demonstrate to God how very serious you are. I've been here for quite a while now. I've been repeating this over and over again. Obviously, this is difficult and an inconvenience to me to do this. And so I'm, you're, I'm convincing God, take notice of me. This is a very pagan view of the gods. Pagan gods don't really care ultimately about human affairs, really. They certainly aren't all-knowing, nor are they necessarily loving. They're often very capricious. They're arbitrary. You must try to figure out what they want, maybe. Try to convince them to listen. Maybe they would be impressed by this kind of a thing, by repetition, calling out louder. Even think of the prophets of Baal yelling, dancing around, cutting themselves, showing how serious they are. Hear us. Oh, would you just pay attention to us? Again, Jesus has told us that the Father is in the heavens and he is in the secret hidden place. He sees what's done in secret. He knows all things. We do not inform him of anything that he's unaware of. Moreover, we approach God as our Father. He is not a deity with like passions to us. We might fly off the handle at any moment. He's not standing aloof and cold to his children's pain. We're not approaching him so as to try to make him hear us or take, take um, notice of us. There are times, of course, where God seems distant, where his face may be hidden from us. 
These are difficult seasons for God's people. We read about them in scriptures. We find them in numerous psalms, for example. But even so, we do not go to God in those moments in order to try to convince Him to take notice of us. Of course, Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 18 a parable intended to demonstrate and teach us that we ought to pray continually and never give up. So there is a pleading with God. It's not saying you would never repeat a prayer. You think about even, so heaping up, piling up words, uh, it's, not, it's not condemning every repetition in a prayer. Right? We even read of Jesus in the night when he was uh, betrayed and when he was arrested. He prayed the same thing three different times in the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told. They were not mindless prayers. They were repeated, but they were not mindless So it is true, we come often, as Jesus taught us to in Luke 18, to plead with God. We continue to pray to God. It could look like we're pestering Him, perhaps. But at no point is, does God not take notice of His people, and at no point does He lack any information that we are supplying Him with. God has His reasons in those difficult times for delaying answers, hiding his face from his people for a time. They can be difficult to endure, but we have precious promises of his ultimate good intentions toward his people that we cling to during those seasons. And we cling to those even as we pray. So as we pray, we're praying because we trust you are still there. You do still care. You will work good even in this difficult time, even though you seem to be withholding answer and help from me i continue to pray because specifically because by faith i grasp that you are here that you do see that you do care we're not going to try to make him care suddenly again our doctrine of god matters in prayer do you pray as if you are informing god of things he's unaware of Or do you think that it's a certain amount of time in prayer, perhaps? I've spent enough time in prayer now. Or if you've got the right formula of words, this is what will unlock the answers. We are to come to God boldly, as we read in Hebrews 4.16, in the name of Christ, boldly and with confidence, not because we have all the right words. We come boldly because Christ secures our entry to God's throne of grace. That's what Hebrews 4, that text is talking about that we read earlier. We pray in the name of Jesus because we are approaching God, the Father, not on the merits of my own goodness. We go in the name of Jesus because we go riding his merits. He authorizes me to come and to make this petition with boldness. Even though, God, you are the creator of the universe. And in many ways, we can say, I have no right to come to you. The only right I have is by coming in the name of Jesus, in his righteousness. It is not our many words heaped up that make us heard. It is coming through Christ Jesus. 
Prayer is not badgering God in order to make him take notice or to inform him of things he does not know. Fifthly, prayer is communing with your omniscient Father. We saw in verse 6 that prayer is communing with your omnipresent Father. And now his omniscience is highlighted. Omniscience, of course, means that he is all-knowing. He knows everything. Verse 8 is given as a reason why we should not take that Gentile approach of piling up words and thinking that's what's going to make us heard. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So again, I think it's made clear here that the reason for these wordy Gentile prayers is that they are designed to get God's attention and to inform him of needs, inform him of some things they don't know. Well, that's not right. That's not necessary because among other things, your father knows what you need before you ever open your mouth and ask him. Again, he is the God who sees into the secret and he knows precisely what is needed. It's an interesting statement. It's an interesting reason given for not piling up words. Some might assume the purpose of prayer is to let God know what we need. I think that's how many people pray. Dear God, here's my list of needs. In fact, I think someone might wonder why then do we pray? If he already knows what I need, what are we doing here? Again, I think this is pointing us to this aspect of communion with God. It's not badgering him to take notice or to instruct him of what he doesn't know. It is, a, it is fellowship with God. In prayer, we speak with our Heavenly Father. And in so doing, we worship him. We display our dependence upon him. We confess to him through Christ's mediation. We confess directly to God the great truths of who he is. You are my heavenly father. You are almighty God. You are the one on whom I depend. We praise him in prayer. We pray as we'll see next week for his name to be hallowed, to be made great, to be honored in my life, yes, and in the lives of others around me, for his kingdom to come. In prayer, we recognize, express our dependence upon our heavenly Father, the one from whom all good gifts come. Does he rule over this earth in absolute sovereignty by his providence? He does. And we are dependent upon him. All good things come from Him. We recognize that as we come and pray to Him. And we'll also see next week, we do pray for our needs. It's not that we never speak of our needs to God. We do pray for them. For things like our daily bread, as we'll see next time. But this is not to inform God of what's needed, as if He doesn't know how much you've got in your fridge. It expresses instead our own recognized dependence upon him 
for those provisions. And so in many ways, prayer really does orient us properly to our God. In prayer, our faith is revealed and it is expressed and worked out as we believe that God is and that we speak not to the wall, but to our Father who is present, to our Father upon whom it is that we depend for everything that we have, for our very breath. Prayer is a means of God's grace to his people. In prayer, we find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Again, Hebrews 4.16. He helps and provides for his people, God does, through prayer. God has established and appointed prayer as a means by which he acts in the world. We see him in scripture answer prayers, withholding judgment, rescuing the needy, strengthening his people. In James 4, we're even told that some people do not have because they do not ask God. They don't pray. James 5 goes on to speak of the power that there is when a righteous person prays to God. God in his sovereignty provides through prayer. And so we go to him. This is also very different than thinking that we're somehow alerting to God to something that he's unaware of. This is very, very different than just some sort of mechanical rote prayer that we've memorized. Heaping up words. We pour out our prayers to our Father. We pour out our requests to him. And we then submit ourselves to his answers, to his timing. He has heard us because he's there. Because we are praying in Christ's name to our Father. And he will answer as he sees fit. And we submit ourselves to that. Here's how John Calvin answers the question of why pray if God already knows the things that you need. He says, believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty, or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises, that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom, in a word, that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect, both for themselves and for others, all good things. Prayer honors God and it does properly orient the believer to him. It's possible that this might lead you, might require of you a very, um, a fundamental shift in the way you think about prayer and in the way you practice prayer. I doubt many of us would consciously think that God doesn't know something. But we might pray a bit that way. We just start, we just list off a bunch of things like we're at a till and someone's looking at us, what do you want? What's your order? You just start listing things off. We're informing them of what we want. We might still have that kind of a, a mindset. 
This is reminding you that when you pray, you are approaching and addressing the sovereign God of the universe, who is your father and who is present there with you. The God who sees into the secret and knows precisely what it is you need. Obviously, prayer is much more than just giving him a list of things. Again, we will see this next week. I'm not knocking making requests of God or pouring out your needs to him. We'll see that in the Lord's prayer next week. But it doesn't begin with that, does it? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Make your name holy in our midst, in my midst. Is this the kind of thing you pray when you pray in your home? When you pray with your children, when you pray with your family, do you pray for these sorts of things? That God's kingdom would come, that more people would see the truth of the gospel. Praying for forgiveness of sins, for courage and strength to forgive others, that God would withhold temptation, deliver you from evil. That he would help you to battle through the temptations you do face. That God would sanctify you. This is so much more than just mechanical words, phrases, or just here's a list of things. There's a communion here, an actual speaking with and time with praying to your Heavenly Father. In the coming verses, Jesus will will get into that further. He will give further instruction on how it is we are to pray, the kinds of things we pray for. But first, he has taught us here the perspective to have and the attitude with which we undertake prayer. It is not a performance of some sort for our own glory. It is not a rambling of words mindlessly is not saying just the right thing in order to get God to take notice and then hopefully respond. Prayer is personal communion with your omnipresent, omniscient Father. It is worth dwelling on that and it is worth pressing through whatever weakness and trial and difficulty you experience in prayer in order to spend this time in prayer with your Father who is present with you when you pray. So let us pray together as we close. Our Heavenly Father, you are in the heavens and we know that When you have revealed yourself to man, even one like Moses, he could only see a glimpse of your glory, your back as you described it. No man can see your glory in our current state and live. Such is your majesty and holiness. We know that when men had visions of your holiness, they fell to their face 
with an instant understanding of their sinfulness. We are reminded in Your Word that You've spoken all things into being. We can't get our heads around just how awesome of a being You are. And yet we are told here, Father, that You are also with us when we close our door and it's just us speaking to You. We have such a privilege to be able to address You and pour out our our hearts and our prayers before you we are told to come boldly on account of what your son has done for us father we are thankful for what your son has done father we lament that we sin when we pray that in sometimes overt, but sometimes just very subtle ways. We pray for the wrong reasons. We pray mindlessly. We repeat phrases that we're not even really thinking about. Father, forgive us for this. It's grievous. It should not be. We know that. We thank you for the righteousness of Christ that covers us. Father, we pray that you would help us to pray. Help us to know that we are speaking with you when we pray. Wherever we might be, whether we are alone in our homes or whether we are with our families or with your people or wherever, that we first and foremost address you. We are speaking to you. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you, God. We pray that this would invigorate our prayers, that we would be in awe of the fact that we can approach you, that we would remember and recognize our neediness for you every step of the way in our lives. Help us to be much in prayer. Father, I pray that the thought of prayer would be something that would excite us, that we would not see it as simply a chore but it's something that is worth the difficulties, worth battling through in order to have communion with you in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would make your name holy, that we would understand more of your greatness and perfections. And that more people around us would come to an understanding of your holiness. And that they would flee to Christ to find refuge from their sins. That they would wake, awake from slumber, from their death, deadness in their own trespasses and sins. Father, be pleased to make your name great. Father, we also look forward to the day when your son will return. What a great and glorious day that will be when we are perfected in righteousness, when the new creation is ushered in in all of its glory, 
Again, this is not a reality we can fully comprehend. But your word is crystal clear about it. Father, we look forward to that day. We pray that you would speed that day. God, we again confess to you our sinfulness, our weakness, and we do depend upon you in everything, for everything. So help us, be merciful to us, teach us to pray. Help us to be concerned with living our lives in your presence above all things before ever being concerned about what other people might think about us. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us, your provisions for us. We give you praise and we give you thanks. And we do pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.